Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper, and I'm the host of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really informative discussion on lung cancer screening. Today, as our guest, we are fortunate to have Dr. Silvestri, the first author of this CHEST publication entitled, Outcomes for More Than One Million People Screened for Lung Cancer with Low-Dose CT Imaging. Uh, Dr. Silvestri, could you please introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Gerard Silvestri. I'm the Hillenbrand Professor of Thoracic Oncology at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. And it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast, Gerard. Um, so let's jump into it. Uh, why is lung cancer screening so important? Well, I think it's important because uh, for years uh, we have not had a, a screening test for those who are heavy uh, current smokers or those who formerly smoked. Um, and we have that for other, what I call the big three cancers, lung, colorectal, and breast cancer. We've had that for colorectal and breast cancer, and we've seen improvements in mortality in both of those where the principles of screening apply. You have to be able to diagnose cancer early. Um, you have to be able to do something for that early diagnosed cancer that improves outcome, uh, and you have to be able to have those folks come back and, and repeat those scans. And so what you want to do is diagnose cancer in an earlier stage where you have a better chance of survival, um, as opposed to, for example, lung cancer, where the vast majority of patients before screening uh, presented with locally advanced or advanced cancer where the outcomes were poor. And so for, for us, having uh, a screening tool in lung cancer is incredibly important. So a lot of the data that we use for lung cancer screening, the benefits of lung cancer screening, um, it derives from the National Lung Screening Trial that was published in 2011. For our audience's benefit, maybe you could just briefly summarize what that trial uh, found um, and its implications. Yeah, so that was a 50,000 person or so uh, randomized control trial, randomized to either low-dose uh, CT screening or versus chest X-ray. We we know now that chest X-ray does not improve mortality, despite the fact that some people still screen with chest X-ray. So one message is don't use chest X-ray screening. Um, and that study found in the uh, in the intervention group of CT screening, uh, they reduced lung cancer mortality, the relative risk of dying of lung cancer by 20 percent, and the risk of overall dying was 7 percent, which uh, which was largely attributable to the reduction in lung cancer death. Uh, the inclusion criteria for that trial are important. It was those between age 55 and 74 who currently smoked or formerly smoked at least 30 pack years. Um, and if you formerly smoked, you had to have given up smoking within 15 years because the risk of uh, developing lung cancer after 15 years was much, uh, was much, much less, so it wouldn't be worth screening in those folks. Um, the trial also is now supported by the Nelson trial published in the New England Journal in the last few years, which was uh, a 19,000-person trial in Europe, which found largely the same uh, reductions in lung cancer mortality. So it's nice to have two very large randomized trials, one in Europe, one in the United States, which both 
sort of document the same thing, which is a reduction in lung cancer mortality uh, for those who are screened. Great. And maybe you could comment on what adherence was required in order to see um, the reduction in mortality. Yes. So the adherence in the National Lung Screening Trial and in Nelson, but in the National Lung Screening Trial was 95% over the three screens, so the three screening period, the three-year period. That is an incredibly high adherence rate. Um, we also saw over a 90% adherence rate in the Nelson trial. And so you have to remember, in, in, in clinical trials, we get uh, sometimes the worried well. We get people who are motivated. Um, they're, they're, tell, they're called. It's a centralized sort of calling system. They're encouraged to come back for their screening. Um, and that's important because half of the cancers detected in the National Lung Screening Trial were detected on the follow-up scans, not on the prevalence scan, not on T0 scan, uh, but, in the, but in the follow-up scans. And so to gain the full benefit, you need to come back. Yeah, adherence is really important. And then one final question before we go into um, your study. Can you comment on um, what CMS covers um, uh, for lung cancer screening and which patients were eligible um, back in 2013 versus now? Yeah, so again, in 2013, uh, 2011, so the, the coverage was, uh, so a couple things happened. In 2013, the United States Preventive Services Task Force gave a B recommendation, meaning pro-screening for those that were uh, 55 to 80, actually, with uh, a 30-pack year history of smoking, and if you quit, you had to quit within 15 years. And you also had to be uh, relatively healthy to be able to undergo uh, surgery for a screen-detected cancer. Um, after the uh, Nelson trial was published, the United States uh, Preventative Services Task Force came back and said, well, wait a second, Nelson screened people down to age 50. Uh, they seemed to find a benefit. There was, uh, the, there was a network of investigators that did some modeling in the United States. And so now what they said uh, was that we, we would be eligible to screen uh, patients 50 to 80. So they added five years to screening eligibility. Uh, they reduced the pack years to 20 pack years or more, but kept the quit time the same. So if you quit, you had to quit within 15 years. Um, in 20, after 2013 and 2015, Medicare uh, started to cover the benefit. They actually went 55 to 77. They split the difference between the National Lung Screening Trial, which stopped at age 74, and the USPSTF, which went to age 80. Um, and, and so now a new coverage statement is now available, which does support screening from CMS for 50 to 80 uh, with the parameters of a 20-pack year history smoking and quit within 15 years. Gotcha. So we have this data. We have the National Lung Screening Trial. Um, we have the Nelson Trial. So why did you go ahead and perform the separate study? Yeah, so one of the interesting things that happened during the, uh, during the CMS deliberations was that they wanted to make sure that it was being done safely. And so one of the things they asked for was that uh, if you were going to get a coverage, for, if your institution was going to get a coverage statement, uh, the benefit of being able to screen through Medicare patient population, all of those patients, uh, all patients, not just Medicare age, had to be entered into a, a, a validated registry um, and so uh, that was a requirement, and there were certain requirements within that of what you had to enter. And so that uh, led the American College of Radiology, which had uh, been doing this for years for breast cancer, to develop the registry for lung cancer. And so uh, after that was 
started in 2015, and after you know five years, 2019, uh, we were able to get that data of the first million screens entered into the Nash, into the American College of Radiology uh, uh, registry and evaluate those those screens. Yeah, so we have data that uh, lung cancer screening does work, but we need to make sure that in real life it's actually happening. Um, so maybe jump into your study methods. Uh, what were your methods and how did they address any limitations of any previously published studies? Yeah, so the methods were um, we, we looked at uh, the registry, we looked at the variables within the registry, we did it, it overall counts of each of those variables, we looked at missing data, um, and then we started to evaluate some big ticket items. And, and actually there are two papers related to this. Our first paper was uh, published in uh, published in Annals of Internal Medicine, um, and that paper uh, looked at a couple of things. The, the one thing that we uh, that we started to look at first was um, was for, did people meet eligibility criteria? And that's important because a lot of people are screened for breast cancer outside the eligibility criteria of age, for example, and risk. Um, and so the, one, the really good piece of news from that paper is that uh, more patients are uh, meet that criteria. Ninety percent or more patients meet the criteria to be screened. That's great news. So doctors have been sending the appropriate age and smoking history uh, to be screened 90% of the time. The other thing we found in that initial paper was that uh, we're over-screening uh, in, we're over-screening females, we're over, meaning we're screening more than the 8 million that are eligible and the proportion of the 8 million are eligible. We're screening people who are older, um, so we, we talked about that in the paper. It, we believe that that's because they have uniform health coverage in over 65 group. We're screening more females than expected, and we perceive the reason for that to be that women have always been involved a, a bit more in preventive services, particularly cervical and breast cancer screening uh, and colorectal cancer screening for that matter, and they do it at a younger age. Um, and uh, we're screening more current smokers than expected. And this was a finding that really surprised me. Um, and it, it surprised me because I thought we would get more former smokers who are very concerned about their health. We think it's an identification problem. You know, if someone comes to a primary care provider that quit smoking 10 years ago, still might be eligible for lung cancer screening, but they have other hosts of, you know, medical needs at the time, and, and it just is out of sight, out of mind. The electronic medical record has a difficult time accurately portraying that population of former smokers. And so if someone comes in, um, you know, sort of you can smell the smoke on their clothes um, and they, they admit to currently smoking, you know, those people are, are getting off to screening. So that was that first paper. In the second paper, uh, we really wanted to look at a few different things. One uh, was the cancer detection rate. One was, does lung RADS work? Lung RADS is a scoring system that uh, tells you um, how suspicious any findings are or if there are no findings. So it's uh, one, two, three, and four. Um, one and two are largely either nothing on the CT or something that looks benign. Those are people who are meant to come back in a year. A lung RADS three score suggests there might be something going on, bring them back in six months rather than a year, and a lung RADS four requires immediate attention, either very careful follow-up in three months or maybe go on to a, a PET or a biopsy. So we want to evaluate the, all the 
that information was in the registry, we wanted to evaluate whether lung RADs worked. So what we should see there and what we did see in this paper was as, uh, as the lung RAD score went up, such that the cancer detection rate and very, very few cancers were found in the lung rad zero one. So it's a really good system if people use it. Uh, and then the third thing we want to look at was the requisite stage shift. Did, did more patients uh, that were had cancer detected, were they detected uh, at an earlier stage? And we certainly found that in this paper as well. Great. Um, so let's jump into your key findings. What were they and uh, how did you interpret them? Yeah, so the first thing was uh, we, again, both from the uh, ALS paper and this paper, uh, the adherence rate was very poor. Um, so only 22% of our eligible patients came back with a lung rads one or two that are meant to come back in a year. And we used a fairly liberal de definition. We said they'd be okay if they came back within 11 to 15 months. That was the definition the National Lung Screening Trial used. And only 22% as opposed to 95% came back. Um, and we've, we've found that if we loosen it up to say, okay, even two years, then only added a little bit more, and then if you added more than two years, 40% uh, uh, eventually came back and had a scan. Uh, and that's just not, not good enough. Um, we, we believe uh, that uh, the message is not getting out there, that this is not a one-and-done uh, procedure. By the way, smokers, were, even though they were screened more for that initial screen, were less likely to come back. Um, and, uh, and certain other risk groups were less likely to come back as well. So adherence wasn't a challenge. Um, the second finding that was a challenge was the cancer detection rate. The National Lung Screening Trial picked up 1.1% of cancers, and Nelson trial in Europe picked up about 1% of all of those screened had a cancer. Um, in this study, uh, we found that the cancer detection rate was 0.56, which is almost half. Now, uh, there are probably a myriad of reasons for that, and we, we don't know exactly why that is. We postulate, though, that if you're not coming back for your follow-up screens, and previously I mentioned that uh, more than half the cancers are picked up in subsequent screens, well, then, of course, your cancer detection rate is going to be lower, uh, and, and that's going to be lower and delayed for a number of years until the cancer gets large enough uh, to be sort of an advanced cancer. So what we're expecting to see in the future is that um, those people who didn't come back will present with cancer at a, at a higher stage than they would have presented had they come back yearly. The second thing is it's possible, we don't know the extent to which this occurs, it's possible that they had their screen in one place but had their evaluation for their cancer in another place, and so they're not entered into the database. Um, you know, it's possible. It's, it's probably not a hugely prevalent uh, uh, occurrence, but I can't guarantee that, and um, so we have no real way of knowing how much uh, that affects screening uh, cancer detection rate um, and falsely lowers the cancer detection rate. I suspect it's probably a combination of those two things, um, but I, expect, I really would expect that adherence is by far the, the, the greater reason for, not, for the lower cancer detection rate. Those are things that I've already mentioned what happened with the lung rads, that it worked really well, and 58% of all cancers uh, were detected at stage one and, and only 14% at stage four, which is exactly what the NLST found. So that's very encouraging. The cancers that were detected were detected in an earlier stage. 
Yeah, so that uh, low adherence is really concerning. And do you think it's related to patients being falsely reassured that, oh, everything's fine on the first cancer, no need for the other? Or is it just um, a lack of information provided to them at the initial visit or follow-up visit? Um, or is it just a capacity issue? Maybe we just don't have the capacity to regularly follow these patients. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think your first two you're right on. The third one I don't I don't think is an issue, and I think there are other issues as well. So the the, the, reassur- the false reassurance may may come from the patient and not the physician, right? The, I don't think the physician says, "Oh, you have a clean scan, go out and smoke," right? Um, uh, I think the patients get a false sense of reassurance, and there was one uh, small um, a focus group that uh, where veterans sort of felt like that was the case, um, and, and that was studied in the past, and that worries all of us. So the second part of this is the messaging piece, which is, um, you know, really need to reinforce the fact that, uh, that uh, adherence is important. And there are some data that suggest that, uh, in, also in focus groups, some unpublished data that suggests that even the, for example, advanced practice providers running screening programs don't really know what their own adherence rate is and never really understood how important that messaging is. So we need to do a better job at messaging. There are some other reasons, though, that I think are worth thinking about. One is that, um, you know, uh, we're seeing more elderly patients come back uh, for their subsequent screened, and so there may be an insurance issue here, right? Like, you're much more likely to come back if you have coverage for this. You might pay out of pocket one time to see what's going on, but so I think there might be some access and insurance issues. And finally, um, you know, some of our population, as opposed to maybe a breast cancer population, remember, we're targeting people that smoke. People that smoke have other comorbidities, and so it may not be uh, something that's a high priority in a patient who has other medical illnesses that might come up during that year. Um, to the, the extent of that, occurs, we don't know. But I think it's a, it's a complicated issue. It's one we really, I don't think, have it sufficiently addressed. Um, but I think it's profound. If you were to ask me what are, what are the two single things that could limit the effectiveness of lung cancer screening, one is uptake, actually, how many people are getting screened across the United States that are eligible. And the other is adherence. I think adherence might be the most important uh, aspect of lung cancer screening, biggest challenge that we have going forward. Yeah, and then you found risk factors for uh, low adherence, uh, the, the current smoker, uh, lower education completion, the uh, folks who lived in uh, the western and southern aspects of uh, the United States. Why do you think those were risk factors? Yeah, so I, I, I think uh, the current smokers, I think, you, you may imagine that they think they got the clean bill of health, they don't come back. They may also have other complications related to their overall care, making this less of a priority for them to come back. Um, you know, the South has had issues with access. Um, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure why the West, and I don't live there, but I do live in Charleston, South Carolina, and um, I think our adherence rates here are probably pretty tied to we have more current smokers than former smokers, and uh, we have lower insurance rates, uh, particularly as it relates to Medicaid expansion, which did not occur in the 13 states where it's not been expanded don't necessarily cover screening services, and those states are largely in the South. So I think that is that. Uh, The education piece, I think, is really important, right? Just in general, by the way, current smokers in the United States are are less 
uh, have uh, less educational attainment than never smokers, right? Um, and so I think all smoking rates are dropping in the United States, but the slope of that decline is different for those with less than a high school degree versus a high school degree versus a college degree and college plus degree. And I think you can imagine if you go to a party, for example, with uh, physicians, I don't think you're going to see many people that smoke. Um, but if you go to a party of construction workers, and I'm not picking on them, but um, you'll, you'll see that a, there's a higher rate of smoking in that population. And, and then the question is, a, do they have access to screening and to re recurrent screening? And B, has anyone taken the time to message them on their education level to let them understand the importance of coming back? And so I, I do think the education piece is incredibly important, and I'm not sure that we've tailored our messages um, so that we reach that population, uh, which I think is difficult to reach. That's a that's a very complicated issue. Um, let's turn to the lung cancer detection rates. Um, you noted that it was uh, zero point five percent compared to one percent in uh, the Nelson trial versus the NLST. Um, your study was conducted twenty fifteen to twenty nineteen, um, around the same time uh, that we had certain navigation platforms, um, and I think your group published on this, and we've discussed it previously. Where the diagnostic yield using some of these technologies wasn't that great, uh, fifty to seventy percent. How much did that limit the ability to diagnose cancer? Um, and do you f see any uh, uh, potential in the upcoming technologies, uh, robotic technologies, in improving that diagnostic yield and allowing physicians to say, you know what, we can actually go ahead and sample that to see if it's cancer or not? Yeah. So the answer is I don't know how much uh, the lower cancer detection rate had to do with getting people um, into a, either a bronchoscopy lab or a needle biopsy. I actually think that part of it is that the follow-up is not being done at all, um, and that's a real issue. So Patricia Rivera published a paper in JAMA Open Network saying only 42% of patients with lung rads 3s and 4s in their North Carolina cohort of screen population um, had the appropriate follow-up in a timely manner. And so I think once you get into that follow-up, irrespective of what technology you use to make a diagnosis, I think we'll figure it out and make a diagnosis. I think they have to get into those areas uh, to make the diagnosis. I'm, I'm not sure that it's a limitation of technology, but more a limitation of uh, not getting those patients back in and, and, and them falling through the cracks, which I think is an, really an, another important issue that we hadn't discussed. Let's uh, jump into that. Um, we all know that uh, the uh, primary care um, has been decimated, uh, especially post-COVID now, but uh, it was definitely happening uh, prior to uh, 2020. Um, who should be following these patients? Uh, we know that there's a shortage of physicians in primary care. Um, there's now a shortage of uh, pulmonologists. Um, how would you expect these patients to be followed? What would be the ideal uh, scenario? It's really a hard one, Dominic, and here's why. Um, to, to make sure that you have reach, you absolutely need to depend on your primary care community. Um, but I think our primary care community is overwhelmed, and it's easier for other cancers. Um, first of all, patients come in and ask for their breast cancer screening. Um, some of them ask for colorectal cancer screening. But it's, it's basically all Americans of a certain age, right, over 45 for colorectal screening, 
40 or 50 for breast cancer screening, depending on risk. Um, we can quibble over that. But in general, if you're a female and you're, you're an age, you're going to be, uh, you're easy to identify. Primary care providers also have to calculate a pack year history, if someone quit, when they quit. A lot of that information, uh, you would think it would be like so easy to get out of electronic medical record, but it's entered inaccurately. So there's that challenge. Um, this, this, and this is a smaller population, maybe 15 million as opposed to 70 million women eligible for breast and, you know, 150 million Americans eligible for colorectal screening. So. So there's this defined population, a little bit harder to reach, as I said, um, and so having primary care uh, providers do this is a little bit more of a challenge for them. Um, then, but they see more patients than anyone else. And then the issue of having a centralized program, which we have here at the university in our six outlying hospitals, um, a centralized program, we hire an advanced practice provider. That person understands shared decision-making, understands um, uh, adherence, um, lives, eats, and breathes that screening, and makes sure that the patient comes back with phone calls, et cetera. And so uh, we looked at this, Dr. Tanner, Nicole Tanner, um, uh, uh, both at the VA and at the university here, um, looked at centralized versus decentralized. And we have a hybrid program here, which is to say that a primary care provider can order this screening if they meet the criteria, um, and, or it can come through our centralized program. We found that adherence was better than 70% in our centralized program and about 40% in our decentralized primary care provider program. And, and that 40% is probably an overestimate because we have uh, our database houses every patient that's screened, and if patients aren't getting followed up, uh, we send a notification to the primary care provider that, hey, you had a lung rats three or four, do you want to refer this to the nodule clinic at MUSC, or do you want to uh, manage it on your own? But at least they're getting a reminder from a healthcare professional that your patient's not coming back and not being screened. Um, so I, I think that... Irrespective of who does this, you have to do it right, and you have to have a system for tracking um, who's being screened, when they should come back, and particularly tracking abnormal screens so that the patients don't fall through the craps. There's nothing worse than getting screened, um, and the patient has a, a significant finding that's ignored, uh, you know, and then, you know, three or four years later, uh, it turns up in the office with a stage four uh, lung cancer. Yeah, we definitely need to uh, promote uh, the screening. Um, Gerard, what were the key limitations in your study? There are no perfect studies, and um, as you already alluded to, um, there were certain components of the study that uh, may not have accounted for all the patients that were screened. What do you want our audience to be aware of? Um, I think you should be aware that any registry is messy, messy right? So there were, um, you know, there was incomplete data uh, on some patients. I've already mentioned that we don't, we can't necessarily link the screen to the uh, to the other downstream events like diagnostic workup and evaluation and that kind of thing. Um, I, I do think the missing data is important, uh, though. With a million patients, you can really see signals, right? Um, uh, so even if we got it wrong, uh, one of the things we did do in the paper to overcome the li limitation of missing data is we looked at centers that uh, had 
40% of all the data uh, submitted, um, particularly on things like race and education, which weren't requirements. Um, and then we had people uh, and insurance status, for example. And then we looked at centers that had 50% and then centers with more than 70% completeness in their, um, in their findings. And, and we didn't find major differences at all in uh, cancer detection rate or lung rads or any of the other findings. So we feel pretty pretty good that even though there's a fair bit of missing data uh, for some of these parameters, that overall, um, and this is what I think people need to do when they look at registries, they're not meant to be like a randomized trial, but they are meant to tell you, look, this is a massively representative population from across the United States. As far as we know, it's the largest number of uh, persons evaluated ever screened, certainly for lung cancer, and we can't find a database of a million people uh, where the, the, the data's been reported out as a million or more for any of the major cancers. So we feel pretty comfortable that this at least tells the public and our physician colleagues uh, where screening is at this time in the United States for lung cancer. This is definitely a work in progress, and uh, your team is commended for uh, analyzing uh, this database and uh, reviewing the one million patients uh, who are screened. Um, what does your study mean mean going forward? Um, we know that the adherence was dismal, 22%. We definitely need to do a better job. How do we go forward to ensure that patients actually benefit um, from lung cancer screening, which has the potential to save countless lives? Yeah, so I would say a couple things. Um, one is that uh, I think pulmonologists are really well placed to do this well. Um, we we see a lot of patients who smoke. Uh, we uh, understand nodule evaluation and management. We care about outcomes. We, for a very long time, have seen patients turning up with advanced and end-stage cancer uh, with not as much uh, help uh, as they need. And so I think pulmonologists are well-placed. But it cannot be on any one person, a physician. This is a process. This is not a you come in with, um, uh, with acute bronchitis, get an antibiotic, and everything clears up. Um, if you're going to get into this business, you have to understand that you're going to need support from your institution. You're going to need to bring in radiology. You're going to make sure that you have templated reporting structure for lung rads in your radiology report. You're going to need to have uh, understand that you're going to be seeing more nodules and having to deal with that. Um, you, you're going to have a tracking system uh, to be able to have uh, knowledge about what your cancer detection rate is, what your stage of cancers are, what your um, ability to uh, manage nodules is. So that is not a one-person thing. That's sort of an all-of-healthcare system approach. Um, for us, we've also set this program up in six rural and underserved hospitals. We've seen incredible results, um, but it took an operations team. It took resources. It took a commitment from our cancer center and our health system to get this right. And I think we can leverage some of the knowledge we've gained over the years from breast and colorectal cancer screening and actually do it better just by having that knowledge. So those are the things going forward. One important um, follow-on experiment, if you will, that we're uh, currently involved in is we're going to link this registry to the Medicare uh, database and to the SEER cancer registry to really get more accurate detail on um, particularly, I guess it, it's above our 65-year-olds, but to really get more detail on what kind of diagnostic 
uh, evolution that those patients have. Uh, what are the complications related to that? How many patients, for example, with benign disease are undergoing surgery, something we don't want to see happen, um, and, and, and the like. So I think that's like, for me, the absolute, uh, absolute important experiment that needs to take place going forward so that we can really see those downstream events you asked about, how many patients are having uh, non-diagnostic evaluations, either by bronchoscopy or other methodologies, how many people are undergoing surgery, all those kinds of things, and, and also the life expectancy of the patients being screened um, and are the patients being screened, um, are maybe some of them are too sick to undergo screening. So are we screening too many patients, for example, that won't benefit it because they'll die of competing causes of death? So that's what we need to do going forward. Right now, what we'd like to see is very regimented, uh, very uh, compulsive uh, screening. And then the other aspect of this is how do we get the message out to those 15 million that it's really important for you to come in and get screened. Um, the analogy I often use, Dominic, is that the patients, uh, not patients, um, if you turn on a football game on Sundays, you can sometimes see 300-pound linemen wearing pink gloves and, and pink cleats for breast cancer awareness. We, we have to do a better job of letting the public know this is a relatively new screening test and that um, it can benefit that population greatly and if they'll only come in and get screened. Yeah, we definitely need to get the word out there. Um, let's say you have a you know a motivated pulmonologist and uh, he's getting together, she's getting together a team um, to address uh, lung cancer screening. What do you think are the key messages or three or four key points that they would need to speak to uh, when speaking to the C-suite or administration uh, so that they get behind it? Um, as you said, it's, it's going to take a village. Um, what which key points do you want them to mention? Yeah, and so the one thing is the first thing I would do is develop an operations team. Uh, any pulmonologist who wants to do this cannot do this on their own. As passionate as they are, they can't do it on their own. So they'll need somebody, a partner in administration, not necessarily in the C-suite, but in administration that um, is passionate, that can make things happen. They'll need a partner in radiology um, uh, and uh, because they're going to get the mass, vast majority of these films. Remember, 75 or 80 percent of the people are just going to have their films read. So they have to have their ducks in a row. When I'm making a case to the C-suite, there are two cases I like to make. One is prevention is wildly popular. And so if you have a cancer center, it's an, one critical component. They get graded on it. What is their prevention and control policies, if you will? So prevention is wildly popular with the public. You can get uh, the public behind prevention. Um, and so uh, they need to understand that. But then there's the, the financial piece of this for the hospital, which is what they want to hear is, are you going to drive more? business into us? Well, the answer is absolutely, right? We're going to pick up more lung cancer. We're going to have more lung cancer surgeries, which are, you know, for the hospital, uh, financially beneficial. We're going to uh, do more PET scans, more biopsies, more. Uh, and, and by the way, we're still picking up patients with stage three and four disease, and so they'll get, um, uh, they'll get chemotherapy, radiation, and the like. And so uh, fundamentally, if you are picking up uh, more cancer and you wouldn't have, and they might not have necessarily been in your system, uh, just out in the community somewhere, um, you can drive uh, business. And there, and there are uh, models that can show you if you screen this many, this, this is how many you might pick up. The National Lung Cancer Roundtable did a, uh, a financial model that you can 
go online and get and, and apply your patient population to that, and it talks about the downstream revenue from that. When you're talking to C-suite, man, you have to make it uh, that it's both an important priority for the general public good, but also financially viable for them. We've, uh, we've done both, um, and again, we've you know, we're now in, in seven hospitals screening. Um, our last 3,000 screens, we had a cancer detection rate of 3%, which is three times higher than the national lung screening trial, largely because we have a heavy smoking population in South Carolina. Um, and our uh, rate of early uh, stage disease between stage one and two is close to 70%. So um, it, success can happen even in small facilities, um, but you have to have support. Don't go into this if you think you can do this on your own. Um, I don't think you can do a good program. I, don't, I think you'll, you'll, you'll endanger patients if you do it on your own. So yeah, it, it definitely takes a village, as you said. And how do we upscale it? Um, as, as you obviously had success um, in your community. It seems as though we have uh, these tiny pockets of success uh, throughout the United States. How do we change it so that it's success in every state, in every district. Um, is that feasible? I, I do think it's feasible. I think it's going to be on sort of a, it's going to be a grassroots and then roll up to local, state, national. As I mentioned, the American Cancer Society has a National Lung Cancer Roundtable, which has really done a great job bringing together all of the stakeholders for screening, including advocates, advocacy groups, professional societies, and uh, key opinion leaders and content area experts, um, and that is actually one of the main goals. And they've had a colorectal roundtable for about 20 years, and um, their screening rates in colorectal cancer really uh, increased over time. So I do think it's going to take time, um, and uh, I do think it is absolutely possible. Um, and I do think, I'm starting to think about, in our state anyway, uh, a more holistic approach to prevention and screening for cancer, which is I've worked in my style in pulmonary for close to 30 years and screening since, you know, before 2011 because we were a site for the National Lung Screening Trial, so maybe since 2005 or 2005. Um, but now I'm starting to think about this and work with some other investigators and um, and community activists in cancer screening um, to think about a holistic approach. Maybe one way to think about this is, hey, if you're coming in from mammography, for example, are you eligible for a lung cancer screen? Um, why aren't we thinking about this in, in terms of, um, you know, colorectal, breast, lung, and cervical cancer with HPV vaccination? Um, so I think it, we need to sort of get out of our little silo and think about it in more of a holistic fashion, which I think can really accelerate the uptake of lung cancer screening. Yeah, that would definitely be a step in the right direction, moving away from our silos and actually collaborating with the other clinicians and the communities. Gerard, you've been very gracious with your time, and it's been a really fascinating discussion. Um, I do want to give you this last opportunity to just summarize any key points that you want our audience to take away um, or any comments um, that we haven't covered as yet that you want to leave them with. No, I, again, I would I would say three things: adherence, adherence, adherence. That's one thing, but I'll say it three times. Uh, the second thing is lung rads works, and so please be confident that if you get a lung rads uh, one two, you can bring them back in a year safely. You won't have a cancer come extremely low risk. Lung rads three, please bring them back in three months. Lung rads four, take it seriously. You're going to have a higher cancer detection rate in that group, and and the work of an evaluation has to happen. 
um, I, I think we need to really reinforce the fact that you have to have a system for tracking these patients so one doesn't slip through the cracks. And finally, uh, uh, the cancer detection rate could be higher, and my hope is that by bringing people back every year, it will be higher. Um, and really, I thank you guys for uh, promoting this uh, this work uh, through the through the chest um, chest uh, um, folks. And it's a pleasure to have you on the uh, podcast, and uh, kudos to you and your team for uh, taking the time to do this really important work. Uh, a very big thank you to Dr. Silvestri for a really fascinating conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.